we were going to call this series Shiny Object Syndrome for the fact that all these new technologies come along and people get really excited about them. But we chose instead to call it This Does Not Compute, a podcast series about what's going on with emerging technologies, with the technologies that you read about in the papers, and we get real experts to come in and talk about them. I'm Jim Lewis. I work at CSIS. I'll be your host for this podcast. Today's guest is Richard Downing, Deputy Assistant Attorney General for the Criminal Division at the Department of Justice. He oversees the work of the Criminal Division's Computer Crimes and Intellectual Property Section, most of us know it as CSIPS, and the Child Exploitation and Obscenity Section. He oversees the prosecution of cybercrime, intellectual property offenses, and child exploitation crimes. And he's been involved in the development of policy on the collection of electronic evidence. Uh, Richard has worked to promote international law enforcement cooperation, one of the things we'll talk about today. Prior to joining DOJ, he served as assistant district attorney in Philadelphia. Thanks for being on today. This is a great topic. It's also a topic that's been around for a while. You were present at the beginning, Yes, that's right. right? Thanks very much for uh, inviting me to, to be part of this. I've been working on these data access issues for quite some time, but you're right. It's been a while, around a while, but there's been a lot of developments lately too, so I think this is a really timely issue. Yeah, and I want to talk about those developments, but let's start by saying what are some strategies, now looking back on your four or five years of experience, what are some strategies moving forward? And we can talk about the, the E-Evidence Act and the OECD guidelines and the US-EU data framework. All of that will shape it. So how are you thinking about making progress on, on transatlantic data cooperation? Well, I guess I'd like to start with part of the broader context, and that is the debate has been going, as you mentioned, for quite some time about how data privacy, data protection, transfers of data from the United States to Europe and Europe to the United States. And frankly, a lot of the worries that have been out there about what the other side might do with the data once it's there. And so a lot of concerns in the European side, of course, about how U.S. government might access that data. But it's also we're very conscious of the really critical role that this kind of data access plays for commercial purposes and specific to me, the public safety side of things. So my work in particular has been more specific, and that is the law enforcement evidence collection part of this debate. We uh, need evidence that's being stored in Europe to solve crimes right here in the United States. And of course, the Europeans need the reverse. Uh, certainly gone are the days when officers could just get everything that they needed right within the area where the crime has happened searching houses and interviewing witnesses. Now they need email, they need cloud stored data. And very often these are outside of the United States. Even the offenders may be outside of the United States. And so that's where the Cloud Act came into being back in 2018. I was part of the group that negotiated that law. And now I'm working on the implementation side of it. But the Cloud Act was a, a real milestone in terms of trying to find creative ways to improve the ability for law enforcement to get access to the evidence it needs to protect the public, but to do it in a efficient way, but also in a way that protects privacy, civil liberties, and those things that both sides of the Atlantic hold as very important. What do you hear from your European colleagues now that the negotiations have started again? I guess there's been a couple rounds in the last three or four months. 
what are they still as concerned with sovereignty? What what are the issues driving the Europeans? You're referring to the negotiations around an agreement for data access that yeah. would be, as we call it, the Cloud Act agreement. So just broadly speaking, of course, these kinds of agreements uh, for listeners that may be less familiar would permit direct access from law enforcement of one country into the other. That is, barriers that each legal system would erect would be taken down. U.S. orders could be served directly on European providers. And the Cloud Act creates the framework for doing that, making sure that there are robust protections in both directions. To get to your question, how are they thinking about it? I think the larger context has been interesting. Uh, They uh, obviously have very important needs. And so they are approaching these negotiations with uh, great interest. And we also are interested in seeing if we can get going on these negotiations, which unfortunately have been on pause for many years. But I do think there's a, a real energy to try to do something about it. And the fact that we have these other agreements in place, including the data privacy framework, just earlier this week came into uh, fruition. Those are the kinds of harmonics that are good. That is that the fact that we are building those kinds of broader trusts, hopefully will mean that we can build this kind of more specific agreement in a good way. So let's, you brought up a couple of the points that have affected the environment here, which is the first, of course, is the privacy framework probably going to be challenged in court almost immediately, just par for the course. The other thing that changes it a little bit is the OECD principles on government access. And what has this done to your job in terms of working with the Europeans? I think both of these things are really very good signs. One of the things that we have been thinking about very seriously is the way that the debate has kind of gotten stuck sometimes in the nitty gritty details oh, your laws are different than ours. We can't cooperate with you. We are concerned about X, Y, and Z. But I think the bigger picture is really what's important here. And that is that we actually share a whole lot of the importance of data privacy protections, oversight to our uh, intelligence and law enforcement collections, and that we are together different than what's going on in some of the authoritarian states around the world. So take the OECD principles. This was generated last year. It's for the first time a a common set of principles and privacy safeguards that we and the European Union and the other members of the OECD share. And uh, having those things set out in authoritative expression of those things really focuses the debate here. And that is that when government is accessing data in a democracy, in a rule of law, situation, those protections are really common. We do things pretty much the same way as each other, and that's different than the way that China or other authoritarian regimes do these things. And so that's one step of building trust. EU data privacy framework is another example. So that is focused, of course, on commercial data, but it builds uh, on a long history of strong privacy and civil liberty protections that we have here in U.S. law. But Interestingly, in the part of that negotiation, the U.S. agreed to real and substantial changes to that, um, new robust redress mechanisms, for example, and other things that are really, I think, quite new and help to reassure our European colleagues that we are, in fact, good stewards of information, that we are a rule of law, rights-protecting approach to these kinds of questions. What I wanted to add, though, is something that came out of that process As part of the AG, the Attorney General, designating European countries as qualifying states under this new agreement, there was a memo that was written and now is public that 
provides the underlying basis for that evaluation. Basically, the attorney general has to find that the laws of these other countries are have appropriate safeguards on intelligence collection. And then this memorandum is a sort of way of supporting that decision for the attorney general. Interestingly, though, as expected, the memo highlights the seriousness by which both sides of the Atlantic take these kinds of questions. And the legal and national security systems may not be quite the same, but they have different histories, and but they can legitimately have these differences while still at their core doing the same things. But the interesting thing is that in some areas, this memo points out the U.S. safeguards surpass those of the European Union, mm-hmm. uh, like our warrant requirement for getting content data is not mirrored oftentimes in European legal systems. And indeed, it shows that we have very similar approaches to collection like FISA 702, which is, of course, often criticized when, in fact, it's indeed similar types of uh, legal processes are done there. So holistically, though, this memo says both systems ensure adequate safeguards as well as allowing security. And again, to go back to your the initial point, this is in stark contrast to the way that authoritarian governments work. So really, I think these are the kinds of bases that, although they don't perhaps directly affect a cloud agreement, set the stage for what's going on. Yeah, I think it's interesting to see that a number of European countries have, in the last three or four years, put in place new oversight mechanisms that are similar to, if not exactly the same as ours. The part that that implies, though, is, of course, that before, say, 2016, most of them didn't have oversight mechanisms, and that's a good step. When you think of the E-Evidence Act, so that was one of the holdups in making progress, is the e-evidence act discussions in the eu how does that affect things where do you track that closely i mean are you involved in any way yes the e-evidence regulation in the eu we were very focused on basically what the e-evidence regulation does is to create a system within the eu that would allow one country to get a european production order and get disclosure of data that's found in another EU member state. So in some way, many ways, a similar notion to what's going on with the Cloud Act. And when it's implemented, which won't be for a few years, it will require US companies to have a presence in the EU and to comply with these sorts of orders. So in many ways, it's, uh, it mirrors the kinds of things that we've been thinking about in a transatlantic way. And it also will function as enabling legislation for a sharing agreement with other countries. And so my expectation is that it will play a key role in the in the future US-EU data access agreement. And in fact, uh, part of the reason we've been focused on it is that the EU indicated to us that they needed to get that result first before they could really begin or re-begin, re-engage on the uh, Cloud Act negotiations. Now that that's complete, it's opened the way for us to have those further talks. So it sounded at the start like maybe the Cloud Act wasn't the primary focus of what the U.S. was pursuing, the the larger question of evidence and the evidence and access to data. But where does the Cloud Act fit in now, particularly with this European change? So the Cloud Act, of course, has, has two parts. What I've been focused on so far has been the agreements part. It sets up the ability to have these agreements with partners who have robust protections for privacy and civil liberties, serve those orders directly and get things done. The other piece of the Cloud Act, of course, though, is in some ways not really related to the agreements part, but that is that it made clear under U.S. law that a provider in the U.S., subject to U.S. jurisdiction, has to comply with a U.S. court order, even if it's chosen to store the data outside of the U.S., So we've been 
of course, interested to see the e-evidence law developments because in some ways they parallel exactly what's going on here. They have the recognized law enforcement in the EU needs to get this access to this data, even if it's outside their borders, and it creates a mechanism for that. And of course, to the extent that the uh, US law was being clarified by the Cloud Act to require providers to obtain the data, even if it's outside the borders of the country, the evidence law does the same thing. So they've really, in Europe, understand these same, uh, have these same concerns, understand the principles and have implemented them in a, in a remarkably similar sort of way. Maybe that's a good thing to come back on then is, are there misperceptions or misunderstandings about the Cloud Act in Europe that might be useful to discuss here? But sure. Sometimes when I read their things, it's, 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 they're not always exactly on point. Well, I think a lot of the worries that we've heard are regarding that second piece of the Cloud Act that would require U.S. providers to disclose data, even if it were stored in the European Union and concerns about the United States government and how it might access or use that data. And particularly that it might do it in some unrestrained way that it's gonna ignore any kind of privacy rights or, or to do it in a sort of untrammeled way. This is really, I think, a myth about Cloud Act and it's unfortunate because it's led to a lot of pressures for things like data localization where EU countries have said, well, we can't trust the United States to behave in an appropriate way. And so we must have the data stored here and in fact bar its disclosure transatlantically. My response to that though would be, let's roll back for a second to sort of first principles. It is a well-established and fundamental principle that a nation can compel disclosure of evidence from companies that are in its jurisdiction if they have control over data or other things that are outside of that jurisdiction. And so it's really um, a well-founded, well-trod ground there that this is an available thing for countries to do. And it's not just in the U.S. law. It's also true of European law and elsewhere around the globe. And indeed, the Budapest Convention on Cybercrime, which is the first multilateral treaty, requires each party to have that power. And there are 68 countries from every corner of the globe that are part of the convention, including just about every EU member state. So not only is this sort of the background, it's a norm of international law, as we were talking about, the e-evidence law enacts exactly that kind of power for the European Union. So the idea to be critical of the United States for having this authority is, I think, risks uh, moving into the zone of hypocrisy. But what really I think is matters is not whether the power exists, but it's how it's used, what safeguards restrict its exercise and prevent abuse. And in this regard, the United States has very strong safeguards. Foremost among them would be things like the constitutional requirement for obtaining uh, the content of communications. We need a full warrant that requires us to go to an independent judge and demonstrate to a very high level, the probable cause level, proof that the evidence will be located in that place. You have to specify with particularity where you're searching. These kinds of protections are core to what we do in our legal system, but they are more stringent, frankly, than many that are imposed in legal systems in different countries, including those in Europe. But also, not only is there constitutional legal protections, it's part of a broader context regarding comity between countries and self-restraint. And so, for example, DOJ policy imposes restrictions on this kind of the use of this kind of authority and the justice manual which is the policy manual for the department of justice 
requires approvals by officials in Washington who understand what's going on before any kind of enforcement order could be done. So there's been a lot going on in the last couple. Has your job changed a lot because you've got the data framework and the guidelines? And maybe you can tell us a little bit if the Budapest Convention and the second additional protocol affects what sure. So a very different landscape from, say, four years ago. No, that's entirely true. I think each one of these is a is another building block in this sort of larger picture, and it's really exciting to see some of that changing. You mentioned the second additional protocol. So the Budapest Convention is, of course, the Convention on Cybercrime that's been in place for two decades. There's just uh, recently last year been concluded a protocol to the agreement that would set up new pathways for obtaining evidence. So very similar to the kind of idea behind the Cloud Act types of agreements. It would be to a smaller set of things, only to subscriber information. Oftentimes that's very important. And it's with all sorts of appropriate protections for private and civil liberties. But it's a broader agreement. It's multilateral. It's 68 parties around the world, every continent. And so these are that, that's really been an exciting achievement. I was actually very pleased that I got to go to Strasbourg last year and sign the agreement on behalf of the United States. So that was uh, not something I expected to do in my prosecutorial career. But uh, it's, an, it's a, I think, a real achievement and shows, again, the trust that is required to be able to find creative ways to solve the problem of, frankly, getting evidence that's needed day in and day out to solve crimes, to protect people and bring offenders to justice. This is an important part of what we as governments are um, obligated to do. And, and when we encounter evidence located overseas, as happens so much, we have to find solutions that are going to work. Yeah, perversely, the Russian effort to get a cybercrime treaty in the UN seems to actually encourage people to sign up to the Budapest Convention. Probably not what they had in mind. uh, (laughs) Well, I think the UN treaty process has turned out differently than I think a lot of people thought at the beginning. I think, frankly, that the the UN treaty, the cybercrime treaty, is progressing well. It borrows a lot of material from the Budapest Convention, which I think is a good thing. I think it shows that there is actually a pretty broad understanding around the world of what kind of conduct should be a crime and what sorts of investigative capabilities countries need in order to investigate it. So we'll see. I understand we could know as early as early next year whether we are able to reach a conclusion on all that, but I'm actually quite positive about where that's headed and notwithstanding the fact that the United States opposed the original motion from the Russians. Yeah, we had in an advertisement, we had uh, Deborah McCarthy on uh, last week to talk about progress in the UN. And she was she was so optimistic that I thought if the Russians are smart, they'll pull the plug on this because it's gotten so completely, so completely in the opposite direction. But, well, I do think <laughs> that the, the whole landscape on the uh, UN scene shifted considerably with the invasion of Ukraine. And and, and I, I expect that that is part of what is, uh, is happening, too, in the context of the cybercrime uh, negotiations. Let's talk a little bit specifically about the Cloud Act. Where does the Cloud Act fit into all this? Is it, is it overtaken by events? Is it just one of the tools now? Is it, for a long time, I thought it was the centerpiece of this effort to get law enforcement cooperation. Where does it stand now? I think it is still very much an important piece. There are, of course, these other paths that we are looking at and building, but they are not 
uh, going to be sufficient or, or adequate by themselves. I think you one way I think a little bit about it is with the uh, second additional protocol where you have 68 countries, you can build a circle of trust amongst them, but only go so far because, of course, that's a lot of countries with different legal systems and different histories. And so the ability to make progress there, which we did, is going to inherently perhaps not be able to move as quickly as as far as as we could under other agreements. But with the United Kingdom and Australia, as we already have done, where we have a strong basis of trust, where our legal systems are quite compatible, where we understand each other, I think we can go a whole lot further. And that's the exciting part about the Cloud Act agreements. They permit us to get content to do more instead of the current process under mutual legal assistance, which, as you may know, is is unfortunately very slow. If you have to ask the other government to go get evidence for you and send it back, those processes take many months. And that's just not fast enough when we have crimes committed using electronic evidence and crossing borders uh, using the internet. We need much faster cooperation and that's the kind of thing we might be able to get with Cloud Act agreement. Yeah, I, I got to deliver a letter rogatory in my first diplomatic assignment and uh... I think it's still pending, so. Uh. <laughs> uh, yes. And we had a special paper for it, too. That was the, the best part. <laughs> well, speaking of that, one of the things I hope we could talk about is that the, the Cloud Act, this will sound like an advertisement, so I should say it's not. But in, in talking certainly to the UK, there's been an amazing change in the amount of time in the number of things processed. Tell us how it's going with the Cloud Act. And it just, it, the, when the British made their statement about how it was going, I was really surprised. Yeah. So we are uh, very happy with how things are going under the, the agreement. It was signed last October, and it's really been a game changer for investigations in the UK. They're faster, they're more efficient, they can send their legal process directly to US providers and get an answer back in a week or 10 days instead of the many months that would, would be uh, required the other way if you could even get it. Since October, I understand from talking to our colleagues in the UK, they say they have processed 7,000 requests for data in the United States and that these requests have indeed affected a very wide range of investigations. One example they offered me was an investigation that, that was looking into a drug distribution network where it led to the seizure of two tons of cocaine and the arrest of three suspects. So not a cyber crime at all. It's a real world drug investigation. Another one was a high priority sexual exploitation case where the data sought led to a warrant to the arrest of the offender. So these are regular meat and potatoes types of crimes that affect victims day in and day out. And they have been using the agreement to really up their game and be able to protect the people in the United Kingdom. For us in the U.S., we're also pleased with um, how things are going. There are fewer requests. We kind of knew this from the start, that there are going to be fewer providers in the U.K., that are handling data that would be useful for U.S. investigations. But although it's a smaller number, we're still pleased with how that's going. They're important in investigations when they do happen. And so far, we have been successful and quickly and easily obtaining evidence that would have taken many months, if at all, to be able to obtain through the mutual legal assistance. So I guess in some progress has been very good. It's an example of how we really can make positive progress towards solving some of the, the deep-seated problems that we have while very much respecting 
privacy and civil liberties and human rights and data protection, those things that, that both countries hold dear. You have an average time for how long these requests take now compared to the, the many months in the past? I don't have specific data on that, but as I understand it, they are treated by the companies, the providers who are responding in the same way that they would treat other orders as well. And so my experience on that, serving domestic U.S. orders on U.S. companies has been that it varies, but we aim for 10 days or two weeks. Sometimes it's longer, depending on what the order is and what the company is. We understand the U.K. is getting that level of service from the U.S. providers, as we would hope, expect and hope that they would. So it's, it's you know, an order of magnitude faster in terms of being able to get things that are needed promptly. Yeah, how about with the Australians? Similar results? With the Australians, we have signed the agreement. We have not yet entered into force. So they are working through things on their end to make sure that their systems and processes are ready for it. But I do hope before the end of the year, we'll have that one up and running as well. The other one we hear sometimes is Canada. Canadian laws sometimes can seem that human rights protections are as good, if not better than ours, but some of their administrative procedures seem a bit wonky. <laughs> Um, how's it going with Canada? Uh, for example, they don't have a Foreign Agents Registration Act, which they discovered when they found Chinese intervening in local politics. But that's just an a, a example of where perhaps what's up with the Canadians, let's put it that way. Yeah, yeah. I obviously can't talk about stuff happening in the negotiating rooms, but we are in the process of negotiating with them. We hope to have news on that shortly. I think the Canadian legal system is, despite, as you say, interesting differences, largely similar. And so we do hope that we will have an agreement with them that, you know, is, is to a fair degree the same as the one that's already been implemented with the UK. I think many of the same, you know, now that we've worked through a lot of the difficult issues, from our perspective, we're very much interested in not having a patchwork of different agreements, each one slightly different from the others. That's a sort of nightmare from an administrative point of view. We'd rather have a system where we have clear understanding for everyone about what needs to be done so that we can use them quickly and efficiently. So anyway, um, hopefully we'll have news on that shortly. Stay tuned. What are the prospects for other agreements that you say with the European Union or with uh, member states or outside of Europe and other countries? What, what, what's the prospects there? We've gotten a lot of inquiries from other countries who are interested in uh, exploring those other opportunities. I think we don't have an unlimited resource pool here. We have a small group of experts, and so we have to be thoughtful about how many agreements we could be negotiating simultaneously. With the European Union, I'm, I'm hopeful. Um, I think it's going to take time. Unfortunately, we've had a bit of a hiatus as a result of, as we said, the Europeans working on their own domestic laws. And of course, negotiating with the EU is probably never going to be a smooth and rapid process. But all that being said, I, I do hope we have, uh, I think we have a path forward. I hope we do are able to get things moving now. We've been meeting with them routinely, notwithstanding the long August vacation that Europe takes. <laughs> uh, we, we, in our research, we usually assume it, we've been saying it, it takes about two years to get one of these agreements. Is that, is that accurate? Is that, so if we said uh, start now, it would be 2025 before we saw something. Yes, I, I think that's optimistic, the two years. Uh, 
No, that's the wrong answer. You're supposed no, to no. I mean, uh, not optimistic, but I'm not sure that's historically true. So, but one thing that is of interest, I didn't realize until we started getting back and uh, together with the European Commission was that the e-evidence law does not go into effect for three years. And so to the extent that it is part of the way that this new agreement will work, which certainly would have a lot of appeal. And of course, it doesn't mean we can't get to an agreement before that enters into effect. In fact, we would ideally have one signed, sealed and delivered and ready to go as soon as that started. But it does sort of set the time frame in a, in a sort of different light than I was uh, expecting. All that being said, I'm hopeful because we have now done these sorts of negotiations several times. We we understand the issues. I think they are are quite understanding of the issues as well. I hope we can make swifter progress. So you've got all these pieces in play now, and they're all going more or less in the right direction. When when you take a step back and think about it. What would be a what would be a good outcome? What would be a good framework for law enforcement cooperation and digital evidence? I mean, do you do you have a global picture here? Is is it going to be some UN treaty and some cloud act and some other bilateral things? Or what's what's the big picture that what's the strategic goal? Hmm. Well, strategic goal has been what I think we've been uh, talking about all along, which is for us to be able to solve crimes in the U.S., we need to have that kind of efficient and quick access. And uh, that is the overarching idea. I think all these are pieces of it. So we have the second additional protocol. It makes some progress. It's not going to be the be all and end all. We have Cloud Act agreements. We are looking for ways to do more. And uh, this is a key piece of, of that. But I also think that we're, hope, we're hopeful, too, that we'll see smoother cooperation in other ways, just based on the fact that we are having these discussions like the OECD principles or the data privacy framework, which is commercial, but that we have an increased trust level and we help to keep building that trust and that engagement so that we are understanding each other and that we're not making decisions based on false ideas about what's going on in the other country. Through all those sorts of building blocks, I'm hoping that we'll get to a, a better place. You think the discussions over the renewal of the FISA and 702 authorities will affect this in any way? I mean, it, it does seem to be a bit neuralgic for some Europeans. Yes, I think uh, uh, my suspicion is that they won't be harmful and, and possibly helpful. Of course, I'm, I'm not deeply involved in those negotiations, but... Uh, reading the tea leaves and the, the sound bites that come out of Congress, it sounds like there's a lot of people interested in putting in reforms, if you want to call them that, or curbs on the way that things have been done. I'm sure that would be only welcomed by the European Union. So they, you know, I, I get a sense that there's some skepticism that that 702 is, uh, you know, it's such a bugaboo that, that, that we won't in the end, it'll be passed again in a, in a sort of clean way. But uh, it's hard to know exactly whether that's true. But as I say, it strikes always strikes me as a little bit dangerous where to be criticized in the U.S. over 702 when, in fact, many European Union member states have very similar types of procedures for their own domestic use. But that part never seems to uh, to bother people who are ready to criticize the United States. Yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't bet on a clean passage for 702. But I was talking with some UK officials recently, they said the term, the preferred term in Europe is guardrails. We need guardrails around guardrails. And you're right that the Germans just passed some new laws uh, on oversight for their domestic collection. 
Uh, the British, of course, reformed their Investigatory Powers Act. I'm not sure where the French are. They they might fit your category of people who do what they complain about. But <laughs> overall, it seems like this this issue came. When would you say the issue of access to digital evidence first became a problem for the U.S.? Is it like minutes after the internet, years after the internet? What's how long have we been working on this? Oh, we've been working on this a long time. Um, I started with the department in 1999 in the computer crime and intellectual property section. And even back then, we were in the midst of the early stages of negotiating what now is the Budapest Convention. Like there was an understanding, at least from the, the, the team that I worked with, that, that evidence located outside of the United States was going to be critical to what we do. And that has only snowballed as all of the development of the internet although we've had the luxury, frankly, of, from a law enforcement point of view, of having many of these providers in the United States and our ability to use domestic process. That luxury is diminishing as naturally it would as the companies move and grow and outside the United States. And so um, I, I, I have real sympathy for our colleagues, uh, law enforcement colleagues in other countries, because uh, they've been living with this problem much more immediately than they have when they're trying to solve a a domestic violence or a murder investigation or whatever, and they need Facebook data, and it's incredibly slow for them to get, that's a deep and abiding problem. We, of course, are seeing that ourselves uh, to a degree. Getting ahead of this was a, an early idea, and it's something that we've worked hard, uh, not only to develop the Budapest Convention, but to build relationships with our foreign law enforcement counterparts to, to be able to solve some of these crimes that inherently cross borders much uh, more readily than in uh, previous centuries. Two last questions, and then uh, we'll let you go. But let's talk about countries other than Europe, because we've talked a lot about Europe. That's been a focus. When I think of places that have similar issues, I'll think of countries like Brazil or India. What, what other countries are on your radar for this sort of cooperative activity? We recognize, too, exactly what you're saying, the, the idea that having a large countries with many users, large companies, and that are democracies would be potentially on the list for future cloud active arrangements. The issue that we are, uh, of course, going to have to cross is that the Cloud Act, when Congress passed the Cloud Act, it said foreign countries have to have robust protections for privacy and civil liberties and human rights. And so one question that, that gets raised is, are we going to be in a position to certify, that is, that the Attorney General certify to Congress that these countries meet those rather stringent rules? I, I wouldn't take anything off the table. I think there are indeed possibilities, and we um, are definitely going to be looking for ways to make this work. But I think we need to be realistic, too, that in order for us to get an agreement, we have to have that certification and Congress has to approve it and, and uh, not approve it, but choose not to block it. And those things are, are real. And so we have to be thoughtful about how we approach who to negotiate with. Yeah, no, this has been really great. Thank you for doing this. Yes, absolutely. It's a pleasure working with you. Thanks for listening. See you on the next episode.